Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I caught up with Clint Marsden and we spoke about his opinion on the overuse of tooling and that people don't need to buy all of the tools. He explains his belief as to why organizations are investing in a lot of money when it comes to this type of stuff. And he also spoke about his response to this. He provides some high-level advice to people about how they can be approaching this within their organization. If you're keen to learn more about what Clint has to say, then please keep on listening. So, Clint, I know that you and I have been talking on LinkedIn for a bit of time and we have been trying to set up this podcast with one another and we finally got here and I think some of the things that we do talk about just uh, within our own messaging is just things that we think about in of the industry and things that we want to sort of question and challenge so I wanted to bring you on the podcast today because I wanted you to really dive deep into some of the topics that you have raised with me and I think it would be incredibly valuable to some of our listeners who do actually ask me a lot of these questions and the questions that you uh, would be the perfect person to answer them so we like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. Can you walk our listeners through your career from where you started to where you are now? Sure. Thanks, KB, and thanks for thanks for having me today. Um, I, I left school at the end of year 10 in 2002, and at the time I just knew that pursuing the HSC wasn't going to be the right fit for me. Um, so my first IT job was at Datacom, and I was working on the Microsoft technical support contract. And at that stage, I was just in level one support, logging calls and taking down people's credit card details uh, over the phone um, to then transfer them to level two. Mm -hmm. And then I was there for about 18 months. And then I I made the transition into uh, corporate life and got the dream job of desktop support, which was no more phones, which was... um, which was such a such a different experience. Um, and I was a system administrator for a while. I did a bit of uh, work on a Citrix farm. Um, and then I got my big break at Cochlear. Uh, well, I was there for six years. And about halfway through, I was able to join the cybersecurity team. Mm-hmm. I got to manage services and the directors of content security really believed in me. And they actually gave me a chance to move into incident response and forensics uh, and, th- and threat hunting. And then that changed probably changed everything for me. It's something I'm still passionate about and, and that's what I love doing. And then I moved into a management position at one of the big four consultancies. And after about 10 months, I realized I wanted to be back on the tools. And um, that's actually what led me to, to where I am now, which is Sydney University. And so that was an interesting point that you sort of spoke about then when you said, I went into a management position, but then realized it wasn't really for me. What When was sort of the the genesis of that moment with that you realized, oh, this isn't for me? I, I didn't have that same, just that same passion uh, and get up and go. And I found myself really longing to get involved on forensic investigations. So when I'd be setting up the jobs, I would be speaking to potential clients on the phone and then I'd have to pass on the work to the juniors. And then they would be doing all the analysis and I would actually just be writing reports based on their findings. And I felt like I was really missing out and I felt like I was just being left out of the picture. And particularly when my own interest was, my curiosity was there, I still had questions lingering about, oh, but what about this? And what about this? And so after a little while, I think also the um, long days in consulting got me Mm -hmm. in the end, Mm -hmm. um, as as many people will attest to. 
So do you think, so you've had that experience, do you think you'll ever sort of progress back into management or you think you're sort of happy doing what you're doing? And I know a lot of people that are personally like that, but a lot of people want to move into management. Do you think that you, that was something that you sort of see as a career progression still or not really at the stage? It, it, and that's, that's actually what happened when I was at Content Security and moved to that consultancy. It, it did feel like that natural progression. You are chasing more money, more responsibility, and it felt like the right thing to do. I've actually found a bit of a sweet spot in what I'm doing now, which is a it's a lead uh, position. So I have a balance of technical, but also providing a bit more mentoring to the younger guys in the team. And so mm-hmm. for me, I can really bring in change. I can I can show them where I've been tripped up in the past. I can get them molded into the right way to do things and the right way to operate from a corporate perspective. And so it's the best of both worlds. So I, I think you've just got to be clear on what you want. And it's hard to get to that stage. You don't always know straight away, but sometimes you just got to suck it and see and, and experience it and then decide later that, that that's where you want to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's let's dive into what's sort of happening in the market at the moment. So let's give a bit of a lay of the land when it comes to attacks. Now, in the midst of uh, recording this podcast, we are going through the COVID-19 situation. So hopefully uh, when this does go live, a lot of this has uh, been alleviated uh, from, from, our, from our globe. But what are you sort of seeing on trend at the moment? So I guess the COVID thing is one thing that we're sort of seeing popping up. But what about the attacks? What are you sort of seeing more of and less of in your experience? So the, in terms of attacks and, and what's happening, I think there's still, well, it's not that I think, it's actually what is what is happening. Phishing is still prevalent and exploits or exploitation of new vulnerabilities is also still quite prevalent. Mm-hmm. And I probably have to say for phishing, it hasn't, I haven't seen much in the way of COVID activity at the moment. I'm reading threat intelligence reports that are saying, there are targeted attacks and I've, I've seen some dodgy URLs floating around, but that, it hasn't really changed. And I don't know if threat actors mm-hmm. have caught up to it yet or if they're just playing the long game. Their campaigns, they, they're wide and varied and, and we typically see a couple of different types of attacks. They will do a big bang. So over 500 recipients will get the, will get the email itself, the attack, or they'll do very targeted. And so with the big bang, it's very, very easy to block and you can purge emails and it's quite easy. When they get a bit more surgical, but they still send out a large amount of email, that's when it can be a bit troublesome. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a bit of a new one that I'm seeing where they might send the same link to maybe two people using the same sender, but mm-hmm. they will attack with a still a large volume of email. And from a security operations perspective, that, that makes it more difficult and you really feel like you're up against it when that happens. So when you say attackers are playing the long game, what do you mean specifically when you say that? They're not as quick to respond in terms of phishing attacks um, as they may be with new vulnerabilities that are released. So I think it's it's fairly distinctive. We can see that there are different different groups operating, and I don't do any threat intel research, but just in the way that they operate, you start to pick it up and you start to build your own baseline in your mind. So with phishing they're not jumping on COVID stuff very, very quickly. And I mean, for it to be going since December, year, I guess. Yeah, yeah, right, till now, and we're only just starting to see a trickle, they're still staying on the same stuff. They're still sending links to PDFs. They're still sending um, links to compromised user credentials, not themed towards the virus. It's still very, very generic. 
Mm. Yeah, I have seen the last recent week just more things sort of popping up on the COVID sort of situation. But I guess you are right. There's still your, your regular type of stuff happening. I guess it's just sad because I think people are probably falling victim to this because they are so scared and would feel that. I think things are being sent out like, you know, click here and it'll give you sort of an up-to-date dashboard on what's sort of happening and that's sort of compromising people. So I guess that's kind of disappointing that that's happening, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, you're, you're right. And and I think from my perspective, I'm only working in, in one organisation and so we see, we see things that are maybe more directed at the education sector. Mm-hmm. But if you look at other online content producers, I mean, Brian Krebs produces some material that, is fairly eye-opening as well. And he's talking about that map that you were just referring to that's that's out there and trying to get people to click on that to get in, uh, get infected and then do things from there. And we, we haven't seen that. So we we don't see everything, but certainly those are the things that, that we are seeing. Um, it hasn't really been COVID-related so far. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so talk to me. When we first spoke to you, like you and I spoke, and you and I were sort of discussing the overuse of tooling in the industry, and you mentioned that people do not really need to buy all of these tools. And so, can you please explain to our listeners? your rationale behind this and why they don't need to, because I agree with you. I think that there are a lot of different vendors and stuff popping up out there. And I think that sometimes people are sold into buying a lot of these tools because of how they have been sold into it. And I just putting all this technology onto into an organization doesn't actually solve the problem. So I'm I'm really keen to hear your thoughts around bringing it back to basics and what's your sort of opinion on that. I've seen both sides of the coin. I've worked in organizations where we were a reseller and so it was advantageous to sell products to people and there's an ethical boundary that you've got to have and make sure that what you're selling is is the right fit. But I guess I'd like to put a caveat in for this and say that what I'm talking about, there's a bit of a maturity curve. And so this isn't suitable for everyone. There are some organizations who haven't had a desire to invest in cybersecurity and only now they have made that call to say that they want to. So for them, it's definitely a logical step that they will will need to uplift and they will need to purchase appliances or consulting services or software to improve their security posture. But there are so many other organizations that are out there that want to spend money on putting in new appliances and and new software that they don't need to. And all that does is it just adds an additional layer of complexity. It's additional tools for their staff to manage. And overall, what ends up happening is that they've got maybe 25, 40% usage of those tools. And a classic example is a previous client where they were getting ransomware infections probably every week, every fortnight. And they were beating us up. This is when I was at Content Security. They were beating us up saying, hey, you're managing this service for us. Why does this keep happening? And after a review of the antivirus platform that they had, there's a checkbox to enable ransomware protection. And when we turn that on, it stops it. it. (laughs) Wow. So why... If if we had sold them at that point, maybe an application whitelisting solution, mm-hmm. yes, it would have solved that problem. It would have cost them a lot of money. They wouldn't have had people to efficiently manage it, et cetera. But it wasn't about implementing a new box. It was about squeezing more juice out of the existing orange and turning on additional functionality. But doesn't that make logical sense, though? Because, like, no one necessarily wants to spend unnecessary money if they don't have to. So if they could do a bit of an audit on what they've currently got and understand are we utilising this to the best that we can, like you mentioned before, that the usage is quite low, which I'm interested to know why. But doesn't that seem like a methodical approach? Yes. Yes, it it, it is a methodical and it's a logical approach, but organisations are made up of people. And we're, as human beings, 
we're made of emotion and feelings and we can be sold to and we can be influenced and swayed to make certain decisions and salespeople are professionals and I respect what they do and they, they're great and security vendors provide an essential service in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the decisions that are being made maybe aren't the best and maybe security consulting is a better solution rather than purchasing a box. But putting a box mm-hmm. in is very, very quick and you can get a project rolled out in a week for vulnerability management, for example, which is probably a poor example because that's probably more of an essential item, but putting in a security box for maybe network access control might take a a couple of days to implement, but is it really what you need? And until you do a baseline of what you have, you you won't know really what is going to be the best fit. So why do you think the usage is so low? Is it because it's kind of like there's so many cooks in the kitchen and no one knows who's cooking anything? Is that kind of the same approach? It depends on the size of the team. I think coming from the consulting side where I would implement vulnerability management platforms, there's very much with something that's new or a bit a bit unique or a bit bespoke where people in the organization don't have expertise to manage it, you tend to put it up on a bit of a pedestal. And so you put in you know, one of the two main vulnerability management products out there. I'm sure everyone who's listening would know what they are. And after the consultant goes away, they go, okay, well, you need to be an expert to figure it out. And, and it's in and it works. And so we'll generate some reports and, and that's good. Not everyone has that, I guess, that passion and drive to break out the PDF, go into it and hunt and find how do we configure these things and what functionality is available. But don't you think they should be onboarded from the vendor to say, this is the capability of what we can do. Here's a bit of an onboarding session. Here, so you can configure it yourself. You understand sort of the power of this product. Is that not happening? <sighs> That's funny. I just I just remembered myself standing up giving a whiteboard session uh, on how it was all architected and how it had been implemented. The the feedback I used to get from people was they were interested in how to get up and running with what it's doing right now. Mm-hmm. Right? It's implemented. It's turned on. We've deployed all the agents. We're scanning or we're monitoring whatever. I think the bigger focus was just day to day management. How do we deal with our existing machines? How do we get reports? Basic stuff like that. In some engagements, you just didn't have enough time to run through it. But a lot of the time people weren't interested in the back end mechanics of it. They were just interested in the, the front end UI and, and how to make it happen. I've worked with some people. There are some great people in Canberra who were the complete opposite and they were interested in everything. Do a deep dive, give me all the manuals, all the documentation. Next time I saw them, they're like, right, so I found this. How does this work? And just completely mind blowing how much product knowledge they'd obtained. It takes people that have that passion to, to dive in, I think. Well, I'm definitely probably one of those people too when there's something that I need to know about. I want to know all the ins and outs because, like I said, it, it increases your knowledge. You're utilizing something at, at the best of its ability, right? So if you're only do, using something at 30%, like it's probably not going to really do its job anyway. I agree 100%. It's almost a waste of, of resources to have someone that's come in and spent time to design a solution and also all the work that's got into running the business case to get it over the line and, and then you find, oh, well, it's become – I call it shelf shelfware, and it's just not configured to the best it could be. So in your ex- opinion or experience, how come people aren't really asking these questions? Okay, we've got like 55 vendor products. 
some of them are utilized at 20, 30%. We should actually be optimizing this and making sure it does its job, what we've paid for and what we are continuously paying for as a service. Why isn't this sort of coming from the leadership perspective to be, this is actually coming out of their budget too. So I feel like there is sort of an ulterior motive for them to actually be asking these questions of their teams, because that to me would be disappointing to know that I've purchased something over a million dollars and no one's actually taken any proactive sort of approach to ensure that this is being implemented and it is being configured at the best of its ability to actually do its job that they've paid to do. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting point. I think a big challenge at the moment is that people who are on the ground, your security analysts or your system administrators, have all that technical knowledge and they're aware of the capabilities of these products that have been implemented. But for some reason, that information isn't trickling up. And I think it's also potentially there are not many organizations that have dedicated security teams either. Mm. And so you've got system admins who would love to spend more time and it could just be that they have a lack of time as well. But when that information isn't getting up to the top to the people that make decisions, decisions are made, we need to solve this risk. We can do it by using this product. If the questions hadn't been asked, what's our overlap? Do we have existing tools um, that can do this? The engineers, or the guys on the ground don't have an opportunity to say, hang on, we could actually solve this problem. A lot of the time, I found they're not, they're just not consulted. So do you think perhaps the owner should be put back on the vendors? Because, I mean, if I was working for a vendor and I knew that my clients that had paid quite a substantial amount of money for a product that they were only utilizing it 20%, do you think they could be a bit more proactive to say like, hey, we want to give you a bit of an induction. Hopefully we can give you uh, some some workshops around uh, how do you configure this or if you have any questions about the capability and the extent of what we can do. Do you think there's not enough of that proactiveness actually happening in the industry? Absolutely. And I, I, I'm not one to cause a stir or – provide provocative messages that, that rub people the wrong way. But I've seen how this happens. And the main issue is that when these projects are, are sold to a combination of implementation plus the appliance or the box or the software, whatever it is, there's such a push to drive down the price that you lose those value-add bits and pieces. So you don't have the days to be able to provide those additional services. But I think what might also be valuable is coming back in six months and saying, okay, so where are you at? And doing a bit of a configuration review. This stuff mm. tends to happen more in a fully managed service. So if you have a seam as a service, so you implement whatever, you know, one of your main seams these days and your managed service provider dials in half a day a week or maybe we're talking about a threat hunting as a service. The guys on the ground understand its limitations. They go, oh, if only we had packet monitoring. They understand the challenges, but because they're not talking to the sales guys that often, there's a disconnect between techies and mm. sales guys. Sales guys okay. don't like the techies and the techies don't like the sales guys, et cetera. That communication <laughs> isn't, isn't happening. And so the, who, who misses out? It's the client because the techies are going, oh, if only we had packets, we could get so much more threat intel. We could chase down these investigations so much better and deliver so much more value. And that's the point where the two have to come together, or all three. You have to have the client, the sales guy, and the engineers. And the client can say to the engineers, right, what are you seeing that we really need? They're not asking the sales guy, because if they ask the sales guy, he may be more motivated to just provide something that is better for him. Mm-hmm. Not saying everyone everyone does this, but what you really need is an engineering perspective to say, or an architectural perspective to say, this is a gap in your environment. Fixing this would give you more visibility. Not buying a new tool, it's turning on extra things. Or if we do a configuration review, going back to that ransomware problem, 
mm-hmm. we can turn on additional functionality without you having to buy a new box, without you having to buy a new tool that then becomes that broken record of, oh, how do we manage it or oh, whatever. It just runs. We'll just get the stock standard reports, et cetera. So what is your belief as to why people are buying lots of these tools and from your experience? And do you think it's because it's how they're positioned or how they're being sold to? I think it's the difference between CapEx and OpEx, which has only kind of come to me recently in probably the past six months or so. The reason why we're buying all these tools is because it comes out of a different bucket of money and, mm-hmm. it, and it changes how it looks on the books. But we're just digging our own holes because we're being told, oh, well, you can only spend money on these types of things. But we need consulting. We need brain power because AI that's detecting all these new threats isn't going to recommend that you should turn these items on. Well, maybe, you know, in, in a Office 365, it tells you, but so many of these tools that we have on-prem, there's so much stuff that we could turn on to just get that additional value. And you need consultants. You need a five-day, 10-day work package to make that happen. But not everyone wants to pay for that. It's, I've seen it time and time again. It's easier to sell a, to sell a box than it is to sell two weeks of consulting. Why do you think that is? Simply because, it's like you said, it can be deployed quicker and a project can be rolled out quicker. Is, is that sort of the main reason or are there other underlying factors? I would only be speculating. But it seems like you can package up. I think people are just geared to packaging up a box and trying to sell a box rather than providing that configuration review. But in I've done so many incident response jobs where my recommendations on the last page always say, get a configuration review for Office 365. Consult professionals who can go through, turn on additional features for this product or implement a stronger baseline configuration for all of these products that you already have. You might have things that are already in place that aren't being used. So many people have an IPS, but it's stuck in monitor mode. Mm -hmm. That's great. But you have the functionality to block things Mm -hmm. that are happening at a packet level, Mm -hmm. but it's, oh, but it's too much work to spend two weeks and analyze what is, what traffic is being seen to go across the network you have the tools right there. It's it's a config thing. It's a training thing. It's people. Doesn't that sound lazy though? Two weeks. It's not like it's two years. I don't think it's lazy. I think we're just not programmed that way. We're programmed to go and buy a box because this, so this is all new and exciting. That is true. You make a good point. At the end of your, your reports and you had your recommendations, obviously from, from this point of view, they weren't taking your recommendations to do the configuration review. I'm assuming that's correct. You know what? I have an excellent example and I can't name them, which is a shame, but an organization had a phishing attack. Uh, it was a spearfish to, well, it was probably, you could probably call it whaling because it went to their CFO or their CEO mm-hmm. and they implemented recommendations so quick. We hadn't finished the forensic investigation and they were asking us for recommendations and they had consultants in locking down their Office 365 environment doing things within their Windows infrastructure environment before it had even hit the ground, before it even you know got on the press. So some organizations are extremely proactive, but you can talk mm-hmm. to so many pen testers who year after year get back in the same way they got in last year because organizations are ticking a box of compliance that we've got a pen test instead mm-hmm. of actually taking action. Yes, I have experienced that myself, yes. That, that's That's the world we live in. Are we trying to tick a box or are we trying to, to stop threats? Like maybe that's the other, that's the other issue. Oh, we have a seam. 
I've seen this before. We have a scene. Cool, we can tick that box. Is it tuned? Is it configured? Are people looking at the alerts? Are they actioning the alerts that they have in the scene? No. And that's that's the crux of it. But don't you think, I mean, if you're working in security, right, like you have to want to care to work in this industry. It's not like doing a job where anyone can kind of do the job. You have to be a certain caliber of person. You have to care. You have to have a level of integrity because to me, like, if, if you know that you've got vulnerabilities in your organization, you don't do anything about it. Like to me, I question people's integrity on stuff like that. And I think that that's disappointing to hear. And I hear it time and time again, all over the globe, not just in Australia. And I think that's disappointing because then kind of why you're here. Like we don't want people in an industry that are just going to turn a blind eye to stuff. Like to me, I, that actually gets me so arced up because I think that they're not the right people to be actually protecting these organizations or working to help protect these organizations. I fire up too because if you look at if you look at people who are trying to get into the industry, um, there's a great young gentleman who I was talking to on LinkedIn who had said, "Oh, I'm trying to get into into cybersecurity." I saw he cross posted someone had liked his post because he just achieved some certifications. Okay. He was so hung, he was so hungry to get into the industry, um, so keen was studying all the basics, all the fundamentals, and it had been about six months. He actually got, uh, got hired by a bank, which was which was great for him. Um, it'll certainly open his eyes to what's out there. But you're right. If you don't have that interest, if you don't have that passion, please step aside because there are tons of people who are trying to get their foot in the door um, and are, are really keen and really hungry and really passionate to, to do things the right way and, and protect organizations. Well, I, kind of, I see it kind of like being a doctor or a nurse. If you're studying substantial amounts of time to want to help people, and if you're like a surgeon and you know someone's got a problem but you refuse to do anything, to me it's like, well, why are you in this? Like you've spent your whole life studying this mm. and to just turn a blind eye because you couldn't be bothered or whatever the reasoning is, to me it just seems like poor form. And frankly, like that actually does a disservice to our industry. It does. It, it really does. Having to having to hold back my frustration on that, I think. <laughs> time, time will tell. Time will tell. I think those people will eventually be flushed out because I, I remember what happened around 2003, 2004, when we had a huge boom of help desk professionals. Mm-hmm. Everyone was – this was the peak of Microsoft certification and Cisco certification. And there was a glut. Sorry, there wasn't a glut. There was a shortage, and then there was a glut. And then mm. a help desk salaries kind of – plateaued for a long time when the market was hungry sure it's it's fine your job is secure when there's plenty of people as we're going to see very soon because there's so many people coming into security i think it's a little bit unbalanced i think there's lots of people who are getting into pen testing mm-hmm. and that pen testing is great but i i want to see more blue teamers because i'm i'm on the blue team side and we just frankly don't have enough people in that area but there will come a time when that also happens and the scales tip and then the people who are good and passionate and driven will succeed yeah, mm-hmm. and survive. And those other people, it, it will not be as attractive uh, for an employer to retain them um, if there's uh, people who can do those jobs better. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. That's a real, I think I like that because I think that yeah, I spoke to a CISO over in the US and he was just like, people aren't there to practice security. You're there to secure mm-hmm. the organization or the bank or whatever you're doing, not to just do your own thing. So to me, it's kind of like, why are you here? Why are you even want to be a part of this? Because it's you not doing one thing actually lets the whole industry down because you're, you don't have that level of integrity. So to me, I think that's really important. And I think even if someone doesn't have the technical capability, you can train that. But to me, you can't train attitude and you can't train just basic common sense. Yeah, that's right. If you start with the right intentions, if you start with the drive and you're happy to 
move into where you are told to to go to succeed, you'll win every every single time. I mean, that's that's what happened to me at Cochlear. I approached the director of, of IT at the time. This was when I was still on the desktop support side. And I said, Matt, I really want to get into the security team. What do I do? And he said, well, you're going to need to get some security certifications. I recommend you start with, what was it at the time? It was do your security plus, network plus, Linux plus, get those fundamentals out of the way, get the get that fundamental knowledge, that baseline knowledge, and then come and see me. And so I went and spent the next year getting them all. And then I went back to him. I said, Matt, I've done them. What's next? And then that's how I got into the security team. You've got to take action, really, but you've, you've got to do the hard work. It's not, it's not easy. No, it's not. I 100% agree with you. And I had a similar approach when I sort of got into it as well. But one of the things I'd like to ask you is – in light of all of our conversations, I'd like to perhaps give some executives out there some tangible advice on how they should be approaching this problem and the problem being the overuse of, of tool, buying tools and not sort of configuring them the right way. What do you think they should sort of start doing and perhaps stop doing? Cybersecurity is, is very fast-paced, um, but I think the best investment is in hiring staff and in the on, ongoing education and training piece. And in terms of hiring staff, I think we've already touched on it, where it's about hiring the right staff, the people who want to be there, who aren't there just to put their feet up on the desk and, and have a job. It's the people who are keen to learn and have enough of a sense of ownership about the organization and believe in the mission of the organization and what you're trying to do, what you're trying to protect and care about the security and the safety of the data and whatever data that is. And it could be as simple as protecting the payroll data within your own organization, or you might do research and you have sensitive health information. So you've got to start with hiring and, and it might take a little while to get the right fit, but it will be worth it in the end. I think short-term pain is, is best for, for long-term gain. But then also putting money into that training budget. I think it's very attractive for a lot of um, potential employees to know that they will be able to go and do a nice course per year and, and you'd have to back that up to make sure they get that certification on the, on the end of it to show that they are still learning and, and they're committed and they don't just want to week off work. But having that education budget is so important because there are, there are some training courses that really distill a lot of security knowledge and the, the people you can meet on those training courses as well can be super beneficial. There's plenty of free content out there and no doubt you could read lots of books uh, and get there slow and steady, but going and paying a few thousand dollars doesn't necessarily have to be that extremely well-known training organization from the United States um, that everyone wants to go to where the courses are around $10,000. There's lots of mid-level and lower-level courses in between that are still quite beneficial. And being able to give your staff that opportunity to do that and step away from the office and just have dedicated three or five days to do it is, is very, very beneficial. You spoke about training budgets. From what I've heard in Australia, a lot of people don't actually put a lot of money against training budgets. And it's interesting because in contrast to that, I was speaking to a gentleman over in Saudi Arabia, and he says that is where they put the most money on things in terms of training. It's all about training there. So why do you think people aren't training people here? Is it because they don't see the value in it or they can't see the direct ROI? Or what is your thoughts on that? Yeah, you're right. It could be it could be hard because quantifying ROI from training is difficult. I think if you align that to losing staff, though, and some people may say, "Yeah, but we train them, and then they get, then they're going to leave." Look, that can happen. That's what callback policies are for. I mean, I did a, my second SANS course at Content Security, and I and I started working at that consultancy. Um, you know, after four or five months, and I, I paid back. 
60, 70% of what I've um, been given for the training course. That's fine. That, that happens. It's, it's ethical. You've got to, you've got to do that. Um, but I think what's the cost of not training your staff? You go and spend a couple hundred thousand dollars on a tool or even more, as you said before, maybe a million bucks. If your staff can't operate it, if they don't know how to be network forensicators, how to be network threat hunters, how to be good analysts, they're missing stuff. There's, there's a tax that can happen and you can spot it happening in the first 10 minutes and go and purge a thousand emails and you could go and save so much more work. You can turn it into a small incident of 10 minutes or the other side of that is writing a lengthy post-incident report that says these are our recommendations and this is what we should have done and these are our lessons learned. Your, your staff have to be trained and they've got to be, I want to say combat ready to understand what they need to do and they use that sense of urgency to quickly respond and it, it ties into playbooks as well. And this is this is all soft, mushy stuff. This isn't hard and a box that you rack and stack and have a UPS connected to and redundant network and all that stuff. This is soft skills. This is tra- people training people mm-hmm. and having that culture of, you know, having a plan, making sure you do it often, you understand how to respond quickly. Uh, it all ties together. But that's that's where the money is because the cost of the business of being offline or having data stolen from mailboxes that could have been avoided mm-hmm. if the guys knew how to, or the girls and guys knew how to respond quickly to an incident and can get it contained and then remediated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So speaking of combat ready, what do you think sort of on the horizon in your opinion in this space? Are we likely to see an increase in tools that aren't perhaps really combating the problems we face as an industry? I'm not entirely sure where it's going to go. We're obviously hearing a lot of murmurs about what AI can do. I think the real value is going to be in orchestration. And when I talk about orchestration, I mean having pre-made rules that can fire when certain events take place. Now, if the system sees that a user account logs in from uh, an overseas country, which is not normal, and then a login occurs from Australia, which is expected, and then emails start getting sent in a large volume from that account, then the system would then lock that account out uh, temporarily or permanently, for example, because it's detected suspicious behavior. And so that may trigger off a set of alerts, or you might do the same thing on computer systems where you start seeing suspicious activity and it may trigger other events that can potentially contain that system off the network uh, to prevent the spread of of malware or contain the endpoints so that um, lateral movement can't can't occur from there. So I think the value is probably going to be more in in that orchestration piece. AI seems to have gone off the boil a little bit. I, I don't know. Did you see there was something a few months ago that they had done a sort of a analysis on these companies claiming they did AI, but then actually didn't? I think it was quite a substantial amount of them. Did you see something like that sort of floating around on, on social and stuff? I was perplexed by that, but it, again, it didn't surprise me. Because it's one of those buzzwords, I think. But now I think when you're like, oh, I'm AI, I think people would just roll their eyes at you more so now than before. Yeah, well, is it is it AI or is it a rule base? Is it is it evolving or is it just a pre-programmed set of rules? If it's a pre-programmed set of rules, well, we're not really talking AI. No. Look, trust I, it, I don't know specifically, but I know that there was a study or something that had been done that a lot of these companies claiming that they AI were in fact not because they had went because they'd done the research. I'm I'm not surprised. It's it's disappointing. 
But I mean, if you're spending a substantial amount of money, you've got to look at real use cases and you've got to get your guys and girls in there testing it and being comfortable with the proof of concept to be satisfied that it can do what it says it can do on the box. And I think in the case of, of AI, sure, it might say that it can do this on the box, but when, when it's actually implemented, make sure that it's in the scope of work to turn that functionality on so that you do get the functionality that's advertised. Because if you don't, well, you're missing out on that. That might have got you over the line. You might have signed with that vendor because they said we do AI. But if it's not turned on, well, what was what was the point? You end up like that other client that you said that you had. <laughs> Happens all too often. Oh, gosh. But anyway, I really appreciate your time, Clint. If people are interested to have a chat with you or perhaps ask you any questions uh, additional to this interview, where can people get in touch with you? LinkedIn is the best you won't see my photo, uh, but you'll see where I'm from. And once we're connected on LinkedIn, uh, you'll uh, you'll see my photo pop up. Awesome. Well, Clint, I really appreciate it. It's so good to have this chat finally. I think it's taken like 12 months, but I am really grateful. I learned a lot myself and I'm sure our listeners will as well. So thank you very much for your time and I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, KB. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.